Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1940 Ceremony Year win Best Actress winner Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. Uh, this is one of the most epic films of all time, which makes for a very great episode. And it also uh, makes for very interesting uh, other nominees and maybe why they were nominated and if they were even competition at all. So that'll be kind of a fun thing to discuss on this episode. Uh, a couple things about the 1940 ceremony Oscar year. Best actor went to Robert Donat for Goodbye Mr. Chips. Best director went to Victor Fleming for Gone with the Wind. Best supporting actress, best supporting actress went to Hattie McDaniel uh, for Gone with the Wind. Uh, she was the first African-American to be nominated for and win an Academy Award. And then the second one after that was Sidney Poitier. That's a big gap. Hashtag Oscars so white. That's a different <laughs> podcast. Best supporting actor went to Thomas Mitchell for the film Stagecoach. And uh, this is uh, one of these years where there's so many classic films. You have Dark Victory, you have The Wizard of Oz. So this will be a very fun episode. Um, today I am joined by a friend, a comedian. Uh, he is a Toronto comic who has a debut album coming out this year called Dick Jokes for Jesus. It's Joe Arsenal. Hi, Joe. Hey, Kyle. Good to be here. Oh, uh, Thank you for coming on here. Now, whenever people... Also, dick jokes for Jesus. That's very funny. I'm. <laughs> that's something to look forward to, definitely. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm excited to hear that whenever that gets released. So we'll have to have you back when you release it as like a promo episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that invite. I'll call. I'll, uh, I'll call in that chip. I love it. Okay. Uh, whenever I bring guests onto the podcast, I always like to ask, you know, like why they picked a certain year. So why Vivian Lee Gone with the Wind? Well, I I just I'm a film history buff, and um, 1939 is the earliest year when all the Best Actress nominees were easily available to find for streaming and rental. So um, <laughs> it's just that, and I was prepared for an obscure year where I didn't know any of the um, uh, any of the nominees. But revisiting Gone with the Wind uh, turns out to have been a uh, well. We'll get to that, but um, it uh, it. Uh, really reminded me of uh, my family because uh, that movie was really special to my grandmother and mm. I hadn't seen it since I was 11. So oh, I love that. worked out really well. I've seen Gone with the Wind once. I think I lasted, I had to do it in chunks because <laughs> it's four hours. Yeah. It's, um, I think, still to this day, the longest running film to win the Academy Award for best picture. So yes, at nearly four hours long, this is the longest running of all motion pictures to win the prestigious Academy Award for best picture. So uh, there was an overture, there's an intermission, there is an exit music moment. Like um, I actually kind of miss intermissions a little bit because it just 
because my boyfriend and I were watching it together. And then when you get the intermission, you're like, okay, I'm going to stretch my legs. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to get a snack. But you still have the music playing in the background. I don't know. I kind of liked it. Yeah, it's a, it's clearly a movie for a time when people didn't have much else to do. No. And, um, <laughs> I, 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 I value that as a time capsule thing. But these days, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's uh, best formatted into episodes these days. I think so. I do think it's odd, though, that they have overtures at the very, very beginning. Is that so people can go get snacks or... You know, that's it's a weird thing. Just get into the movie. Well, I mean, we take for granted that we've all got decent speakers in our home and can call up any music we want at any time now. But that's true. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people just got there early, uh, eager to hear this symphonic sound on good speakers, which they would never otherwise get a chance. Oh, that's true. I mean, I guess I didn't really think about that. And truly, like this movie, for so many reasons, Just Gone with the Wind specifically, is of another time mm-hmm. <laughs> for more than one reason. Yeah. Um, you know, they're trying to make this south seem like you know the the martyr the sympathetic point of view it's it it's interesting but anyway talking about this particular year it's actually like an insanely stacked lineup of classic actors you have Greer Garson you have Greta Garbo you Mm. have Irene Dunn you have Betty Davis who wanted to be Scarlett O'Hara and to her dying day admitted how much she hated that she didn't land that role and also whenever they were like looking for uh, Scarlett O'Hara they literally were saying like we want a Betty Davis type but younger (laughs) but younger yeah and more attractive and that would just if you were Betty Davis just fucking piss you off right Catherine Um, Hepburn lobbied for it hard and um uh well we'll we'll get to it but um you know was Vivian Lee a good choice uh let's leave you in suspense yeah it's (laughs) it's uh interesting uh all of this well well there's so much to talk about and that's the thing with (laughs) this year because you have the Sophie's Choice Meryl Streep year where you're like, could anybody else have won? And this is such an iconic historic film. Still to this day, adjusted for inflation, it would be the highest like grossing selling film of all time. Uh, and the second would be Avatar. So like, it's a huge fucking deal movie. So it's like to, to have a podcast episode where we're going to be debating like who we think should have won. It's kind of almost like a, it's silly because it's like, well, this is regarded as like one of the greatest performances in movie history. But I think that that'll just be fun for, you know, just ta- just seeing why other people were nominated. And, and maybe if we did have another preference, um, but obviously this is uh, one of the greatest performances of all time. So we'll just, this might be an interesting episode or it might be a predictable episode. You guys have to stick around to the end. Oh, me? it's unpredictable. You'll see. Okay. Okay. Good, good, good. I love it. Okay. Um, so the first person that we'll talk about uh, is Greer Garson in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Very quickly, uh, this movie is about an aged teacher and former headmaster of a boarding school that recalls his life and personal uh, career uh, over the decades. And uh, Robert Donat, uh who plays the title role, uh, he won Best Actor. Um, and Greer Garson plays his wife, Catherine, in a very, very brief, but memorable performance she clocks in at Greer Garson's performance runs a little under 25 minutes yet Miss Garson received an Oscar nomination for best actress category one of the shortest performances to have ever been nominated although frankly within the last like 20 years I don't I don't know about that because I think Nicole Kidman won for like 20 20 something minutes as well but anyway so Greer Garson um in this 
movie, she shows up in what the German or Swiss or Austrian mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she, Mr. Chips, she brings him out of his shell and forces him to do things that a studious academic man like wouldn't normally do. They eventually have a child and then the child and Greer Garson die in childbirth. And that's basically it for her in this movie. I'm so glad to find out that we don't have to preserve spoilers. Uh, No. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, If you still don't know how Goodbye Mr. Chips goes and you care, you really missed the boat. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad we're getting her out of the way early because that's what the movie does. Yeah. (laughs) What's your take on category fraud? Because on the one hand, you know, if she had been nominated for Best Supporting Actress, that would kind of let the audience know she's not going to be around a lot. And there goes the only interesting twist in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I talk about category fraud constantly on this show. On the last episode, we talked about um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Viola Davis being nominated mm-hmm. for Best Actress, although it does make up for the fact that in Fences, she was clearly the lead and then she won Best Supporting. So the, she kind of, it's like the Redeemer nomination yeah. and it cancels out. But um, I mean, Talia Shire got nominated for uh, Rocky for only being in the movie for I think like 15 to 20 minutes as well. So, and she had a lead actress nomination. So, so for me, um, I think it says more to the roles for women, mm. especially during this time um this was also greer garson's first major motion picture oh yeah because she had been in the studio for a while and they kept offering her things she said no and this was the first one that she said yes to so you know getting an oscar nomination on your first film that's a pretty big deal but that being said though um if we're looking at all of these performances and these nominated performances like this is not a lead Mm -hmm. comparatively speaking and also um You can see the charm that she has as an actress in this movie. Uh, But this role, I'm sorry, there's just not really much there to it. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to category fraud, I think there is a case for people like Anthony Hopkins in The Silence of the Lambs and Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Um, If you time it, it's egregious category fraud. But with, you know, magnetic charisma, they make the movie about them and this is not that uh, <laughs> Greer Garson acquits herself perfectly performing with poise and elegance in a role that calls for nothing else I think this is the 19th century version of a manic pixie dream girl yeah right <laughs> like, true you know just some some misogynist who doesn't realize that's what he is wrote his ideal woman and she's like great I gotta do this I'm I'm surprised to hear she was choosy about her roles like this is the role someone takes when they're you know not choosy is my impression sure I mean you know 1930s special right uh but it it, I suppose um the female like best lead actress category um and these roles maybe perhaps it's less competitive Compared to men, I mean, if you're looking at like, um, so I think Clark Gable got paid like $125,000 for Gone with the Wind. And I think Vivian Lee, who's the whole fucking movie, only got paid $25,000. Mm. So it's just, it's it's always, you know, roles for women and the way, the amount that they get paid. I mean, this is still a conversation that we're having now. Um, so I think for Greer Garson, she's like, oh, I'm only in the movie for like 20 minutes. Absolutely. Great. I would love to do that. Um, because they just didn't really have any other choice and they had to maximize the most of what they could with these kind of like not super layered roles or characters. And I think she does a good job. Yeah. I, she couldn't do it better. I'm, yeah, she's clearly a talent and she's got, I mean, I think what kept her from being a bigger star, the kind that 
many people, you know, Madonna in Vogue didn't sing Greer Garson gave good face. There's a reason for that. She has (laughs) what I like to think of as like, um, you know, like people like Shania Twain, Jessica Lange, their, their faces are Barbie doll perfect, but it's an unmemorable face and that's death for an actor. Um, that said, I, I wonder if she, I mean, so I guess I'm so surprised to find she was on contract to a studio. I read the trivia for most of the movies, but I must've missed this one. Um, (laughs) And she just said no until one that came along that didn't have enough, that didn't have too many lines to memorize? I guess. Legend. <laughs> Legend, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, one thing about this movie that drove me absolutely crazy is they must have said Chippy or Mr. Chip 400 fucking times. I was mm. like, we get it. We know what his name is. We don't need to keep hearing it. Um, I also love the idea whenever they were in Austria, they were on a cycling mm. vacation that sounds like fun. I wouldn't, <laughs> I'm not mad at that. Um, and then I also love historically how they talk about um, Mr. Chip. He's like, oh, to Greer Garson, like, how do you do it? Do you have to like side saddle the bicycle because <laughs> of your big dress and stuff like that? And um, I love just sort of like the comedy of the, because this is a period piece because it takes place in the late 19th century, I think. I think when it concludes, World War One is going on, right. which must have been really resonant in 1939. Right. And so it's it's just, yeah, this... Listen, her performance is brief, but memorable. I wouldn't say it's obviously her best. She was, I think, nominated like six or seven more times. And she eventually won Best Leading Actress for uh, her role in World War II, the movie. Yeah, right. Mrs. Miniver. Mrs. Miniver in 1946, was it? Or 1945 that she had won for? Uh, Don't quote me on that, but somewhere. I think 42 or 43, because I remember Mrs. Miniver is so poignant today, not to change the topic to another year but um it was clearly made when the Brit- british were losing the war and you can oh. feel that in the- oh i love that well that would be an interesting episode maybe we could talk about that whenever your uh <laughs> dick jokes for jesus comes out. <laughs> um i feel like uh there's some funny moments like whenever he mr chips reluctantly not reluctantly but like bashfully proposes to her do you want to marry me and she says dreadfully (laughs) um and uh you know the movie itself was it's fine but the movie is it's mr chips it's it's robert denott it's not greer garson and it's so stagey. I mean, if you... Yeah. A, a litmus test for any movie is is actually watching this better than reading a summary of it. And this right. is definitely not passing that test. I think so. You're, yeah, you're right. Just um, a couple facts about this movie. So this is adapted from the 1934 novella, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Uh, James Hilton based the character of Mr. Chips on uh, uh, William H. Balgarney. I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. Why did you change the name? Uh, Yeah, right. Uh, His old classics master who taught for over 50 years at the Lays Public School in Cambridge. Uh, Like we already established before, this is Greer Garson's first major motion picture. And uh, she was initially offered a contract from MGM in 1937, but refused all the minor parts that that she was offered until she was offered the role of Kathy Ellis in this movie. So... I also would have to agree with you by being like, why would you, of all the movies, wait for this one to say yes to this one? But I mean, clearly she got an Oscar nomination out of it, so it worked out. And, you know, the movie depends on her having enough magnetism and poise that people, especially all the schoolboys, are smitten with her immediately. Mm. And she does sell that. So uh, a great actress doing the best she can in a 
thankless rule in a dated film. You're that's that, that I'm we're going to leave it there. I think that's <laughs> basically like the best way to to summarize the the movie and the performance. Um Okay, so let's talk about Greta Garbo in oh. Ninochka. So I have never seen a Greta Garbo <gasps> film, and this was my first time watching this. Uh, so very quickly, a stern Soviet woman sent to Paris to supervise the sale of jewels seized from Russian nobles finds herself attracted to a man played by Melvin Douglas, his character's name is Leon, who represents everything that she is supposed to detest. So perhaps there is a capitalist in her heart after all. (laughs) And she in this movie is extremely monotonous. Um, She is very, uh, you know, like, because she's from the Soviet Union. So there there is a lot of like stereotypes in in the performance and and in the way that she portrays Ninochka. But um, it's so fun. (laughs) <laughs> and um, just as my first time seeing Greta Garbo in a film, uh, it's it. she just has that classic Hollywood 1920s, 1930s sort of look. She was famous during the silent era. Uh, when she got into talkies, the big headline was uh, Greta Garbo talks. And then this, the big campaign was Greta Garbo laughs. Um, and this was a huge success, um, both financially and critically. And uh, this was her second last film because she made another film with Melvin Douglas that was a total bomb. And then she retired from acting and never made a film ever again. Yeah, she just uh, invested well and retired to be a reclusive lesbian gardener. And I, I <laughs> honestly, I just wish when you're when you're too movies away from your swan song i think you have an obligation to disclose it to the academy because not giving her this oscar they must have thought they'd have another chance true they did give her an honorary oscar in the mid 50s oh did she show up i don't think she showed up for that one <laughs> she was too busy gardening um also being a retired uh lesbian gardener that's my dream mm. um it's funny. Uh, so at the beginning uh with the former and grand duchess the jewels are seized by the Soviet government legally. Okay, so the movie opens on the Grand Duchess and she's talking about her jewels. Because I didn't know who Greer Garson was yet, and I had never seen her Greta Garbo. Movie. Or sorry, excuse me, Greta Garbo. Thank you. Uh, you will need to correct me a lot on this. <laughs> I have really bad ADD. Um, and uh, when when the movie opened, I thought that the actress that w- was the Duchess, I thought that that was Greta Garbo, and I was like, what? I'm so confused. I'm like, this is so boring. Like, why? And then when Greta Garbo shows up on the train platform, I'm like, oh, <laughs> there she is. Oh, I get it. Okay. She has insane presence. Yeah. And she's much more interesting. <laughs> a, a little a little one note. The performance was a little one note at first because it was just this monotonous, like, uh, almost robotic sort of delivery of everything. Um, very emotionless. But then uh, at one point, Leon makes her laugh by, like, falling over after so many attempts to make her laugh and... She couldn't, wouldn't, and then he falls over, makes a fool of himself, and then she totally comes out of her shell, and then she's all, like, very much enamored with the lifestyle of Europe, and she buys that ridiculous hat, that little triangle, a year for really hideous hats, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say it, uh, and and it's just kind of fun, like, watching her fall in love and navigate, like, her con- her conflict of, like, how she was raised and, like, the new lifestyle that she might be adopting, and... 
it's it's just it's a lot of fun for like a rom-com yeah i i loved this movie i i had a similar experience i um watched it with my husband who had never seen a greta garbo movie before i had seen camille which i think was the one that became a blockbuster based on the tagline garbo talks okay and of course garbo laughs they they greenlit this movie based on the slogan and then got some funny people to fill in the blanks Really? Oh, that's funny. They just knew that's the next poster that's going to sell tickets, and they were right. I think it was a big hit. Um, But yeah, he had never seen a Garbo movie, and um, the first time there was a pretty young woman on screen, it was it was a, a waitress and he asked, is that Greta Garbo? And I just turned to him and said, not having seen this movie, but knowing how Hollywood in the thirties works, you'll know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and she's in this extremely de-glamorized uh, performance where she's playing a Soviet apparatchik. It was um, strictly business. And um, I think actually not wearing makeup or if so, it's very subtle, but mm-hmm. she still gets the glamor Vaseline lens close up when she's introduced just so you know, well, you know, <laughs> Madonna said it best. She gave great face. Yes, that's so true. Greta Gabo. Yeah, that's funny. Um, but I feel like what made the performance interesting for me, just because, like I said, it, it uh, at first it was a little robotic, but mm-hmm. then um, I understand that that's the point. Um, but is that worthy of an Oscar? I don't think so. But then once she starts to adopt the, uh, you know, ideals and the traditions of the West a little bit more, and she breaks down her walls a little bit more, um, and you see that change and that development, that's for me when the performance becomes interesting and the movie becomes interesting, it becomes a lot more entertaining. I liked her performance a lot more than you did. Even at the beginning, <laughs> I, I I, guess I was really attuned with just how out of step this was for leading roles for women in 1939. Mm. I mean, how many audience members had ever seen a woman who comes into town to fix a diplomatic error and boss people around? I thought so too. Yeah, right? Yeah, that was groundbreaking. <laughs> and um, I like how it was very interesting to see how Greta Garbo tackled the challenge of a you know, she became a star to millions of fans around the world who didn't even know she had a Swedish accent. Right. Um, her English was, you know, fluent-ish, but uh, I don't think, I, I don't have an ear for it, but I don't think she attempted a Russian accent in this. She was just using her natural Swedish voice. And yeah. That's a good judgment call because yeah. it would have been distracting. I also wondered that as well, if that was Russian or if that was Swedish. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think everyone in the movie just used their native accent. There are lots of people playing Russians in that. And some actually, sometimes it was hard to tell who was supposed to be Russian because they didn't give us that signifier. Right. But watching the Nochka was such a joy. It was the first of these five I watched for this. And it just reminded me not to lower the bar. If you watch most movies from the 30s, you come away thinking, well, of course the dialogue is hackneyed and everything is spelled out. People were stupider back then. And then you watch Ninochka and no... There were smart people. Occasionally, they got a movie made for them. <laughs> and uh, occasionally, they were allowed to make movies. I mean, the one zinger after another that requires up-to-date political knowledge of geopolitics at the moment. And every time, it's funny. I mean, she has, in her, Greta Garbo's first scene, they... Uh, the Stalinist show trials were just beginning to be known outside of it. And she quips, or the, 
uh, it's going very well. We're going to have better but fewer Russians. Yeah, right. Like, that is an edgy joke today, considering the horror it's referring to was still going on. Right. Um, this is a smart movie, and it was a joy. It's the only one that, you know, I had a 48-hour rental movie period for everything in this <laughs> podcast. That's the one I watched twice. Oh, I love that. Um, that's great. I think feel yeah i mean there was even like a like a hitler joke at one point because somebody did <laughs> it was the a good heil, one. <laughs> yeah the heil hitler on the and they were like oh nope that's not our nope and i was like oh right because obviously that would be going on at that time in history um she so but the okay i was confused by the ending because she ends up going to constantinople which is modern day istanbul and they opened a restaurant together and she stays there it is kind of confusing and the movie's great flaw is that the the great screenwriters it was um there were a few credited screenwriters and they took the unusual step of uh, this was directed by ernst lubitsch who was the master of the screwball comedy and he rewrote a lot of it on the fly and the credited writers petitioned the writers guild to get him credited uh because he deserved it and the writers guild overruled them so um oh it's a masterful screenplay except they create this impossible situation and i think a if we're going to spoil the end, I I don't think, um, I think it could be made a perfect movie if they just accepted that due to circumstances, these two, you know, the leading man and the leading lady, they had a nice romance and now they're not going to meet again. But because the movie spends 30 unfunny minutes coming up with, you know, unlikely contrivances to give us the art- artificial happy ending and... That's why it's not in Gone with the Wind territory. (laughs) (laughs) I have to agree with you just because I think that the logistics of the ending uh, for me was just kind of the one thing that like, I wouldn't say like ruined it, but it did maybe leave a little bit of a bad taste in Mm -hmm. my mouth just because I kind of thought like you, especially with Soviet Russia, like it's just, that would be insane that you would just leave, go to, uh, Constantinople and like they would just be like are you coming back and then she's like no I'm good like it's, it just doesn't that didn't really make sense to me but uh, I also write I also wrote happy ending I guess don't overthink it period <laughs> like I just kind of left it there um, but it was just uh, in terms of all of these nominations and all of these performances I would say this one for me was the most fun mm. and this one was the most Maybe not entertaining, but like it's up there with like the most entertaining. Yeah, actually, my I, I perceived Greta Garbo's performance the opposite of you. I really liked it before she thawed. Okay, when she was an ice queen, because um, there was a lot of cynicism in the capitalist West about communist ideals, especially since the Soviet Union wasn't going right. And I liked that, you know the writers were people who believed in communist ideals and were sad about how things were turning out. And it was great to see her written and acting as a true idealist. Like she's not some, she's not enforcing Soviet principles cynically because she's trying to get promoted. She really believes in it and that makes her lovable. And then of course she laughs, falls in love, heart melts and she stops doing her job. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yes. It's so true. And it was all after the laughing. That was the, 
where she pivots into Western uh, ideals and culture a little bit more. It was just after the laughing. That was when her walls broke down. But advice to listeners, definitely watch Ninochka and not when you're like in the mood for, oh, this is a homework movie. It'll be good for me. No, watch it for sublime entertainment and turn it off with 15 minutes to go. <laughs> it is true, though. It, it is a very fun movie. Um, couple of things about this movie. So Greta Garbo had her misgivings about appearing in a comedy um, and was particularly nervous about the drunk scene where she like opens the safe and they're like wearing the jewels, uh, which she considered to be highly vulgar to be Mm. drunk on camera. (laughs) Uh, The tagline, oh no, we've already covered that. Um, Although Greta Garbo's famous hat in the film was made by her regular costumer, Adrian, it was actually based on a sketch by Garbo herself. And it's so ugly, that's how we know she was a lesbian. I, I was about to say, it is the fuggliest hat I've ever seen in my life. Um, this movie was banned in the Soviet Union and its satellite states, which I don't really think that's a surprise. <laughs> um, curiously enough, this was the very movie Arnold Schwarzenegger studied when he was trying to find his character for Red Heat in 1988. The exercise was to emulate Greta Garbo and was recommended to him by director Walter Hill, which... I mean, maybe like the roboticness of the or the coldness of the beginning of the performance, well, I suppose. Say this about Schwarzenegger. He also gives good face. Yeah, he also gives good face. Um, this film's success, uh, this was among Garbo's biggest box office hits, led MGM to mistakenly assume that her next film should be a comedy as well. So this was the movie... Uh, the Two-Faced Woman, which again co-starred Garbo and Melvin Douglas. It bombed so badly that, yeah, Garbo decided to buy out her MGM contract and retire from the screen. Uh, she resisted all offers until... Uh, she resisted all offers to return to acting and lived essentially as a recluse for another half century before dying in 1990. I remember... Uh, I found out who Greta Garbo is by watching Saturday Night Live as a kid because when she died, there was she was famous enough that... People could make jokes about her. She was known to me through comedy punchlines as the actress who said, I want to be alone and who was a recluse before I found out any of her work. And for the decades of um, her uh, retirement in New York, um, New Yorker film buffs would just enjoy their Greta Garbo sightings. She wasn't a total hermit. She was out and about in the city, but didn't do much in high society, didn't do much in cinema. So I... um, you know, I, I regret not being old enough to have wandered around New York hoping to stumble upon Greta Garbo just doing her thing. <laughs> Apparently, that's like Faye Dunaway now. She kind of just like pops into places in New York here and there. I randomly get people being like, I was at, I don't know, Chick-fil-A and I saw Faye Dunaway. <laughs> I don't know. But I think Greta Garbo was nice and Faye Dunaway's retirement may not be voluntary. <laughs> I am craving a viewing of Mommy Dearest actually soon. Um Okay, so do you have anything else that you would like to add to Greta Garbo's performance in Ninochka before we move on? I think we've said it all. Okay. Let's talk about Irene Dunn in Love Affair. So this is also another rom-com. This movie is about a French playboy and an American former nightclub singer. Uh, They fall in love aboard a ship. And, um, you know, this isn't really like a high-stakes plot, but it's... (laughs) it's, um, entertaining enough it's enjoyable i enjoyed i enjoyed it more than goodbye mr chips mm-hmm. um charles boyer plays michel uh who's the the french playboy that they're referring to he's a painter in the film and they run into each other on a ship and it's sort of this forbidden love conflict because they're both engaged 
and they fall in love. Like, so Charles Boyer takes Irene Dunn at one of the ship's uh, ports of call, and he introduces her to his grandmother, and she, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Maria, I'm going to get this so wrong, Uspenskaya, um, Good job. Yeah, sure. She uh, loves Irene Dunn, and um, it becomes sort of like an unrequited love situation. After this uh, trip on the ship, they decide that they're going to meet again in six months at, uh, what's that building? Empire State Building. The Empire State Building. And then just before she can actually meet him six months later, <laughs> she gets into a car accident, becomes paralyzed. And then it's this tragic story, but then in the end, they get together. Spoiler. Spoiler. Well, like 80, 90 years spoiler. So like, whatever. You've had time to watch it, you guys. Uh, What did you think about this movie and what did you think about Irene Dunn? So uh, this is the one I paid the least attention to. Here's the thing. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm in the midst of a Toronto divorce, which is where you agree that you're splitting up, but it takes six months for someone to find a new apartment. I see. So this is the one I watched on my phone because I screened all these for divorce themes and figured, you know, let's maintain the truce and peace and not bring up any themes in the living room. So... um, it's uh, very much stolen moments. That said, I'm so glad you reminded me of that interlude where they visit the grandmother because that was the only bit where the movie came alive. Okay. But uh, I'm glad this got remade because it's, I mean, the notion of let's meet in a year at a famous place and not even keep in touch, just be there. Like that is such a grand romantic gesture and it deserved movies you know, with a little more oomph than this one. Sure. I mean, it's it's fun because also I'm sorry to hear that you're going through a divorce. Yes. Um, but also I would understand why you would not want to watch movies uh, to keep the peace uh, with <laughs> themes like this that could definitely be triggering. Um, so they fall in love with other people while they're married and then they wind up together nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> Who do I want to watch that not with? Oh, God. Okay. Well, fair enough. Um, I'm sorry that that was so triggering that we had to watch this. Although, uh, you know what? I blame you because you picked the ears. So it's your fault. Fair, fair. It's your fault. Um, but I do, one thing that I find, this is not intentional, but I, what I do think of the time, like historically speaking, is that like marriages moved so much faster back <laughs> in the day. Like if you went on like one date by dinner, you were already like registered at the Bay <laughs> as a couple for your, your wedding, you know? Well, a lot of people believed in no sex before marriage and they were horny too. So yes, that, that's, I think a lot of marriages were just like, they just really wanted to fuck and that's why they got married. And then afterwards they're like, Oh shoot, there's not that much here. Oh, straight people. <laughs> what, uh, you know, something that I found a, a theme of 1939 movies, and this is the case in Ninochka and goodbye, Mr. Chips. And again, in love affair, love affair. Um, there is such an imbalance, an asymmetry between how perfect a woman has to be to be portrayed as a desirable character in a film, and they have to pretend they're really obsessed romantically and sexually with these men who are barely trying by today's standards. Right. Like, I re- this is just like Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I loved Irene Dunn in this movie, and I thought the movie wasn't worthy of her, especially, um, you know... The premise of the movie is she falls head over heels in love with a guy who I think a real self-respecting woman would uh, say, okay, I'm going to go over here now. Yeah, 100%. But it was that sort of, I don't know, love at first sight moment. Uh, Which Charles Boyer does not quite sell. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, 
she does whenever she uh, cannot walk anymore and she's in a wheelchair, she becomes accidentally sort of like a choir teacher for orphans, which of course lends to like the ideal woman and the Mm. perfect woman and being so amazing with children. And um, the way that she sort of becomes like a martyr uh, in that moment to um, Charles Boyer, it's like, I don't want to burden him with my, (laughs) uh, you know, disability. And um, I also didn't quite understand how he figured out that she uh, couldn't walk because he kind of walks around the corner in that room when she was sitting on the couch and then he walks around the corner and there's like this big uh, painting um, with the with his grandmother or at least it looked like his grandmother in the painting um, and then he just kind of figures it out <laughs> and I was like I, I don't there were a lot of, there were some things to me that were just a little unclear and I think that was I didn't understand how he figured out that she couldn't walk. Yeah, that I didn't get that part. That wasn't clear to me either. I was, I was. The movie was on thin ice for me at that point, and I was. <laughs> and this is at the end. Yeah, this is the very end. Yeah, I was. Um, although I've, I've had a change of heart. I thought this is oh, like the moment they introduced the disability theme. Uh, my first thought is, oh, this is going to be problematic. And then I was like, look how problematic. And looking back, well, not really. I mean, we're. I think it is. I don't know. Did you find it insensitive? Because my at first, at my gut reaction was oh, she's having a long monologue about how no one will ever love her because she has to use a wheelchair to get around. Like, that's not woke. But it actually seemed like a pretty sensitive uh, approach to the kind of thoughts that go through someone who has a change like that in their life. What do you think? I guess so. I mean, there's a way of doing those kinds of things and making it believable enough that it is interesting. I mean, like Betty Davis in Dark Victory, for example, whenever she starts to lose her eyesight, Mm -hmm. I think that was maybe a little bit more sympathetic and effective uh, than Irene Dunn becoming crippled because it mostly for the rest of the movie, she just becomes like she's just sitting down. Yeah. I don't really know if... It's just like you're saying, like you weren't really paying attention to this movie very much. If I'm being honest with you, I wasn't really paying attention to this movie oh, very much. It's either. that kind of movie. It is that kind of movie. There's really not a lot here, but it is like a cute little like rom com in a way. I liked listening to her sing. I imagine I don't know if that was actually her singing or maybe it was, she was lip syncing for her life and they had somebody <laughs> else like you know like Audrey Hepburn in um, My Fair Lady, which actually. Uh, Audrey Hepburn didn't know that she was going to be dubbed over, but that's a different (laughs) podcast. But um, overall, just this is uh, like you're saying, like an idyllic of the perfect woman kind of performance, uh, which I'm sure resonated for a lot of men in the 1930s. (laughs) And I think that in that regard, then she's doing a fantastic job because that's what was required of her. And, you know, these movies are really a product of their time gone with the wind. And (laughs) overall, I just don't really know how much being crippled really adds to the story other than it just being like a a hurdle. But like it just almost like I don't want to say lazy writing, but like it's just kind of like there's so much more effective, interesting ways of making a hurdle to a relationship than somebody being in a wheelchair because it almost seems kind of shallow to not yeah. want to be with somebody because they can't walk. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I, it's a pet peeve of mine that most people who write romance films don't know anything about love. Oh, we need an <laughs> obstacle. Let's pull something out of the hat. Well, how about different values? Right. <laughs> That'd oh, be that's more hilarious. Interesting. That's so funny. My favorite thing about the movie, though, I loved the interlude on Madeira with um, the woman whose name we're not going to try to pronounce again, but 
I love the time capsule element of old movies because the woman who plays the grandmother, um, she was born in the 19th century and she's old enough to have started acting then. Mm -hmm. And it really shows in how vivid and uh, how full of life her performance is. She really steals the whole movie with a brief interlude. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so grateful that this probably legend of the Russian stage before she was exiled. I'm assuming she was Russian based on the name. I don't forgot to Google that. <laughs> she was Nanashka. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, just, just knowing that this person's work has been documented. So, so advice to listeners do watch love affair, but just fast forward to when the best supporting actress nominee is in it. That's the way to watch the movie. It's true. Actually. She kind of was the best performance and Easily. she's like maybe in it for five or 10 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've seen several Irene Dunn movies. She's a legend because I'm a big fan of old screwball comedies, and that's her at her best. And, like, watching Love Affair, I just thought she could have been making one of those. Yeah. Well, whenever she, um, at the end, uh, will not just spit it out that she uh, can't walk and he's there and he leaves and he comes back and then it's like oh that scene was so drawn out Mm -hmm. and I became so frustrated I was like oh my god girl just say it like take the (laughs) stupid crocheted blanket off of your legs and just say I didn't see you at the Rockefeller Center (laughs) because I uh, am fucking crippled like just spit (laughs) spit it out like spit it out it was uh, it, it drove me drove me crazy yeah, not not our favorite of these nominees. No. Um, okay, some trivia about this movie. So after this movie was released, restaurants were suddenly bombarded with requests for pink champagne. Um, I wrote that down as a. Fa- I think the pink champagne was on the ship, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a. They celebrate by toasting with pink champagne because again, lazy screenwriter writers who don't know anything about relationships think, you know, that's how people fall in love. Oh, let's drink something tasty. Pink champagne. Um, and oh, I don't know if you're gonna like to hear this. This was Irene Dunn's favorite film. Um, and it also happens to be Charles Boyer's favorite film as well. <laughs> well, you know what? A lot of great artists don't know their strengths. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was one of my favorites. I wouldn't say it's a boring film. I would just say, like, it's a product of its time. And that sometimes means that it can be a little difficult to sit through entirely. And this, for me, was an example of that. Yeah, yeah. So I hate knowing that. Like, Irene Dunn, you know, if she weren't dead, I'd be... Making a pilgrimage to her house and forcing her to rewatch The Awful Truth. I'm, actually, I, I could be confusing it with someone else. But if I'm remembering right, that's a great movie with her. <laughs> um, Love Affair, you said, was made two more times. The uh, third time, I believe, was with Warren Beatty and Annette Bening and Catherine Hepburn in the early 90s. And it was a huge flop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it got nominated for a couple Razzies. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you and- know... She did the most that she could with it. I mean, Irene Dunn. She did yeah. the most that she could do with this. And I think that um, for the time, this was probably a really fun movie, fun performance. Just maybe not my fave. And the best expression of, or the best pseudo remake of this gimmick is, of course, it was not a, I don't think the writers of this were credited because it was just an inspiration, but Sleepless in Seattle borrowed the best ideas from this plot uh, in at 1993 classic blockbuster romantic comedy that is actually really good. Yeah. No, that's that's true. Um, oh my gosh. Okay, so I think I think we should we'll move on. Uh, hmm. But Irene Dunn, uh, good job with what you had. Hey, best actress listeners, enjoying the show? 
want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning ad-free by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. <laughs> um, Betty Davis. Let's talk about Betty Davis in Dark Victory. So... It's funny that she was nominated next to uh, Vivian Lee because she, till the day she died, mm-hmm. always said that she should have been Scarlett O'Hara. And um, she had just won for Jezebel, which is a very similar role to mm-hmm. Scarlett O'Hara. So obviously the world was like, oh, well, we can see her as this. You mean, listen, I don't know if Betty Davis would have knocked it out of the park like Vivian Lee. It would. It certainly would have been a different performance. Yeah. But it would have been a good performance. But it is kind of fun that Betty Davis is in... Uh, the best actress uh, category as well, even though, you know, she was what, like snubbed for Gone with the Wind, right? It was very noble of the Academy to give Betty Davis the chance to lose to Vivian Lee twice. Yeah, right. That's very true. And uh, I think this was Betty Davis's like third time where she got nominated like five years in a row. Mm-hmm. So I think this was either like number three or number two, because it would have been Dangerous, Jezebel... Dark Victory, I think Little Foxes. Anyway, it's some, it's one of those. Mm. But very quickly, Dark Victory. Um, a young socialite is diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and must decide whether or not she'll meet her final days with dignity. And um, I've seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, rewatching it a second time around, maybe I had more of a greater appreciation for it because I was probably paying closer attention <laughs> to it this time. Uh, the doctor that she marries and falls in love with, George Brent, um, also uh, very good in this movie. But this is a Betty Davis vehicle, <laughs> and it's all about Betty Davis. And um, she's very good at sort of being, I, I don't know if unlikable is the word, but she's very good at being... Betty Davis and not an anti-hero, but like almost kind of an anti-hero because she is described as being sweet and kind and so nice. I'm like, really? She seems kind of bratty, mm. like a little not not to the point of Scarlett O'Hara kind of bratty, um, but she just seems like a rich white woman who rides horses. You know what I mean? Totally. And I mean, Betty Davis, obviously a master of the form. Uh, I... Uh, I'm obviously a huge fan. I'm a homosexual. I have sense and taste. Uh, but I loved her in All About Eve. I loved her in Jezebel. And they were right not to cast her because Jezebel is itself a masterpiece. And it would have been the same, you know, it was a, she needed a clean slate after that. Right. Um, this movie, I don't like her performance. I Like, she's clearly, it's not a lack of talent. It's judgment calls that I think didn't serve the material. Okay. I, um... It, I like it. I I thought I always liked it when a movie has a fast, lightning quick, screwball pace of uh, dialogue delivery. Mm. And Dark Victory, although it's not a comedy, has that, especially at least at the beginning. And I found them talking so fast, it was difficult for me to follow. (laughs) Maybe I should have watched it more sober, but still, this is usually not an (laughs) obstacle. That is so true. The way that they would deliver the lines in the 1930s was very, very specific. And yeah. 
I there were definitely uh, all of these movies suffered from that, um, where it was tricky to hear. But um, you know, she okay. So at the beginning, she has blurred vision, which is menacing and a sign that something is wrong. Um, she falls off her horse. Uh, she uh, when she does go blind at one point, the only thing I have to say to this performance that I was like, "Girl, come on," was when she was starting to go blind. At one point, she just went cross-eyed, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I guess you're blind now." Yeah. Um, I thought that was a little silly, but otherwise, you know, um, there's a lot of layers to this performance where I found that maybe like Irene Dunn in Love Affair and even Greta Garbo and Ninochka, it's kind of like, I'm this way. And then I'm like this way now. It's like Betty Davis was interesting because it's like, she had to decide, yeah, whether or not she was going to um, just get drunk and fuck it. I don't give a shit. Like I'm dying. Fuck this. So, and I'm just going to be awful to everybody around me. Or, uh, am I going to be nice and understand and just accept my fate with dignity? And, um, I enjoyed watching that kind of, uh, conflict. Ronald Reagan is in this movie. Ew. Mm. <laughs> uh, just putting that one. My out first there. Ronald Reagan movie. I, I was trying to avoid that. Oops. <laughs> and, um, like, cause you understand both of her, uh, perspectives of like maybe why she would want a kamikaze for the rest of her life by getting drunk all the time and being kind of rude to people. Um, but then whenever she moves in with uh, a George Brent and they, they have that countryside home and she tries to make the most of it. And um, you realize that that was like a choice that she actively made and she's doing that in spite of the fact that she's sick. So we just, of all the performances and all the roles, I just found this one to be more interesting compared to, you know, something like uh, Greer Garson and Goodbye Mr. Chips. It's just, there's just more to the role and more to the story. And I, I appreciated that compared to some of these other films. Yeah, I, I give this movie a lot of credit. To me, it's the most dated and least enjoyable of the five <laughs> today. But the reason for that is, like, what's the point of watching a movie? I always say either give me reality or give me something better. Mm. Um, and what is the purpose of a movie where the premise is basically person gets sick and dies? Mm. Um, you know, sometimes the purpose of art is to explain ways the human condition can go and prepare us for that um and this was people doing their best to expose people to that kind of storyline um there have since been many way better and you're not gonna you know no contemporary viewer is going to learn any insights about death and illness from dark victory that they can't watch from a hundred better movies seen made since but this was one of the this is a pretty early movie for an example of trying with serious ambition to handle such difficult topics and i give them credit for it mm. um i resent having had to watch it <laughs> um it's interesting because i think that was actually one of the biggest criticisms of this film when it came out uh was that this movie is just a very drawn out death scene mm -hmm. um but i would say that Betty Davis does add a lot of layers to it. I think that she does make it interesting, like whenever she breaks off the engagement with George Brent because she thinks that the only reason why he's marrying her is because uh, he feels bad. And then she self-sabotages. And then she eventually comes around and realizes that he actually does love her and that she's going to make the most of it. Just those kinds of things is what makes the performance interesting to me and the way that she handles those scenes um, where compared to the other performances, you know, you have a lot of like, oh, I love you. I've mm. known you for an hour. Are we married? Let's get married and have children. Please give me a kiss. Like that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it, 
it also just more interesting subject matter. Like I said before, like whenever um, Irene Dunn is like, oh, I'm crippled because I'm sitting down now. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay. But at least you kind of go through the, the something that if somebody was losing their eyesight, what that might look like and, and, and how that would affect the way that you navigate the world. We got to see that where like in Irene Dunn, in Love Affair, you don't see that at all. She's just literally in a bed or in a chair or on a couch and she's just talking to everybody like everything's fine. Um, so I just thought that that kind of was a little bit more interesting, but... I will also kind of agree with you slightly. Of all of the Betty Davis movies, of all the Betty Davis performances, this would probably be lower on the totem pole of my favorites of hers. Yeah, if someone said this was the only Betty Davis movie they'd seen, I'd right. say you don't know her yet. Right. And also, I, I've, everything you just praised, I think that is credit to the screenplay. True. And the character is more interesting, but I honestly think Betty Davis's approach to this could have learned something from Greta Garbo, who is more reticent. Like, Betty Davis was a woman who loved memorizing and delivering lines. And if she could just bring to this character, uh, you know, sometimes it's good, and this is something Greta Garbo knew instinctively, to make the audience lean forward impatiently wondering what the character's going to say next. And that's something Betty Davis never did. Oh, that's so funny. I That's a very interesting take. I love that. Um... But I would say that of the bigger of of all the changes um, uh, in these characters and the development and how they grow and stuff like that, this was for me just one of the more interesting of the group. Um, some trivia about this film. So again, also like Irene Dunn, Betty Davis said that this was her favorite role to play. <laughs> I mean, is that true? Could Did they that ask her true? that after All About Eve? Yeah, no way. I would, no way. I don't know about that. Um, for the record, the year of the year that uh, Judy Holiday beat Betty Davis for all about Eve was my first choice of podcast, but some bitch got to it first. <laughs> yeah, we did that. That was our very first episode. Oh, good taste. <laughs> uh, what's funny though, is that uh, I think because whenever she had won the role for Margot Channing in all about Eve, I think originally it was Claudette Colbert hmm. who won the Oscar for her over uh, when she was nominated for of human bondage. Mm-hmm. And she felt that she should have won and the whole world felt that she should have won. And then she won a year after for dangerous, but like apparently that movie is just awful. Even Betty Davis said herself, but it was like a consolation prize, but mm-hmm. it's kind of just, uh, that every- was her scent of a woman. Yeah. 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 Like everybody gets their, um, everybody gets their, their moment and their revenge in some way, but <laughs> Off screen, getting back to Dark Victory here, uh, Betty Davis suffered a nervous breakdown during filming as a result of her crumbling marriage to Harmon Nelson. Reportedly, producer Hal B. Wallace convinced Davis that she could actually benefit by using these real-life emotions of pain and loss to enhance the portrayal of her character, Judith. Meanwhile, Davis's marital problems didn't prevent her from embarking on an affair with co-star George Brent, and they went to co-star in 10 more films together after this box office smash, so. Relatable. Yeah, and sexy. Um, (laughs) The scene in Dr. Steele's office where Judith can't light her cigarette, and then a few minutes later she can't light Dr. Steele's, was devised by Edmund Goulding. He explained it as, when Betty Davis can't light her own cigarette, you know something is seriously wrong. (laughs) Which I like that. I just like that they, um, you know, I'm sure the studio head had a great insight by saying, hey, use the pain of your divorce to uh, to create this great art and don't take any time off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, 
That's very interesting, though. I mean, yeah. I, I Have you seen The Letter with Betty Davis? Yes. I love that movie so much compared to maybe Dark Victory. And that was recent around, the, that, that, that was around this time. I think The Letter was in the, the 1940s. There are so many other Betty Davis performances, you know? Um, but it's not a bad performance. It's just that... Uh, even the lighting of the cigarette, even that was like a little silly as well, mm. a little comical, but just the cross-eyed, <laughs> I'm going blind, my eyes are crossed, that to me, I was like, okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't have guessed that of these two, I mean, Love Affair was slightly the more sensitive portrayal of disability. I suppose. Yeah. Um, eh, also, let's call them a tie for not that great. <laughs> also, I don't know, I think Irene Dunn also, she seems like she'd be better with kids than <laughs> Betty Davis. <laughs> Please tell me Betty Davis never had kids. Uh, she did. She had uh, Beatty. She wrote that book, which was like a follow-up to Mommy Dearest almost, about oh. Joan Crawford. See, that's why I hope Betty Davis didn't have kids. All right. I just, <laughs> I just knew. She, she, I think she had two or three kids, actually. She wasn't sure herself. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Why am I slandering Betty Davis? I do not know this woman. Great actress. <laughs> no. uh, um, okay. Well, let's talk about our winner. Oh. Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind. So, uh, very quickly, Gone with the Wind, I think this is funny the way that it's described. It's an American motion picture classic in which a manipulative woman and a roguish man conduct a turbulent romance during the Civil War uh, and Reconstruction periods in the South. In this movie, there is so much racism. The way that they (laughs) present and glorify slavery, um, the perspective is the sympathy with the South um, and how they're the victims uh, of uh, the losing the 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 Confederacy. Anyway, I I don't know too much about American history, uh, but I do know that the South lost, and they talk about it all the time, (laughs) (laughs) and that that's I I know that's a thing. that being said, though, this film is visually stunning. It is a masterpiece. The costumes, the visuals, I mean, especially for the time. Um, Hattie McDaniel, like I said earlier, she became the first African-American to be nominated for and win uh, an Oscar. But obviously due to segregation, she couldn't even sit with her cast members. Mm-hmm. And she had to take uh, she had to go through a separate door into the building. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we already said, yeah, at four hours long, this is the longest running motion picture of all time to win best picture. Um, this is something that I thought about throughout the entire movie because I read this before watching the movie. Vivian Lee later said that she hated kissing Clark Gable, Clark Gable because of his bad breath, rumored to be caused by his false teeth and a result of excessive smoking. According to Frank Buckingham, a technician who observed the film being made, um, Gable would sometimes eat garlic before his kissing scenes with Vivian Lee. So, and one person described the smell as, quote, a stench. <laughs> so watching the movie, I could just smell him. And I, the whole time that, he, anytime he was talking to Scarlet I was like oh god this poor girl because he's like right there like he's like right in her face and I'm like that's just cruel that they so just I guess what I'm trying to say is I think she also got points for this Oscar for the fact that she didn't get sick while performing (laughs) she didn't wear it on her face she looked like she was she wanted to be there well then again though I mean like knowing what his breath smelled like Clark Gable still a seven Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He, he looks like a 10, but the breath makes it a 7. <laughs> I think Vivian Lee deserved the... Well, I mean, like, the best thing about her performance is that she's able to sell being 
romantically and erotically infatuated for life with uh, a man named Leslie playing a man named Ashley. That's double girl names. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, that's tough to convince. I could never figure out why she wanted Ashley over Clark Gable. I never, fi- I'm like, no. <laughs> like, it's Clark fucking Gable. But she sold it. It was uh, Leslie Howard's failure there. Like, he should have just been more appealing somehow. It's funny, whenever... Um, they brought in director uh, Victor Fleming. He didn't want to make Scarlett O'Hara um, as sympathetic as George Cukor did whenever he was the one who was originally filming. And he made, uh, they actually, a, a part of the reason why they took George Cukor off the project, who also was on Wizard of Oz at one point and then also got replaced by Victor Fleming. But um, a big part of why he was taken, George Cukor was taken off of the picture was because um, it was a story between uh, Scarlett and um, uh, Rhett. Rhett Butler and because it was a straight couple and he was a homosexual they were like mm, I don't think you'd be able to like do this very well and direct this very well but then apparently after George Cukor was taken off of this project uh, Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland still had uh, like weekend sessions with him to really get the character consistent because uh, Vivian wanted uh, Scarlett to be sympathetic because she really is a very complex character. Yeah. She is, she can be very unlikable. She's immature, she's childish, she's selfish, but that's what makes it so interesting. Yes. And she just knocks it out of the park. They were searching the entire planet for, for Scarlett O'Hara. They wanted a Betty Davis type, but they also wanted it to be an unknown because it was... Um, it was the David O. Selznick's new production company mm-hmm. and he couldn't bring people because like Betty Davis for example because she was under contract at uh, Warner Brothers or MGM or wherever the mm-hmm. hell she was and uh, uh, so the, the the search for Vivian Lee it was like people that had never acted before were auditioning for this and then when Vivian Lee a British woman got this role the whole world was like no like there's no way and she fucking nailed it and she sold it and this is regarded as one of the greatest performances of all time for a reason yeah i there's so many th- boxes she had the tick to i mean this is the uh this is the longest oscar winning performance of all time she has two and a half hours of screen time uh i don't think anyone's matched that even if they haven't won maybe elizabeth taylor and cleopatra i'm not timing it no. um <laughs> First of all, I mean, she, the actress has to be so classically beautiful that the, from the, her first ultra glamorous close up, you see, oh, this is why men are tripping over themselves to get some of her attention. Yes. And she has it. And she has to, she's not a very likable character, but you can never take your eyes off her or wonder what she's going to say next. Mm-hmm. Then you don't mind spending two and a half hours with her. Um, I it's it's alchemy. It's amazing that she pulled it off. Um I just thought it was comical at the end how naive Olivia de Havilland's Melanie Wilkes Booth was. <laughs> like she kept trying to steal her husband, Ashley, and then she'd always like everyone was like, yo, like this bitch is trying to take your man. <laughs> and then she would just be like, No, you don't know her like I know her. She she cares for me. She she took care of she nursed me back to health. And she just denies until the day she dies. And still Scarlet was still gunning for for Ashley. I um actually she was really just trying to steal everybody's man at one point and she was just so self-centered she was kind of like one of the original anti-heroes but you're still like rooting for her i think the movie's greatest flaw and yes this is a racist movie but the greatest flaw is the olivia de havilland character is this 
unrecognizable saint who's not like any actual human being. Right. Um, it's every time she's in the scene, you're really just waiting for someone more interesting to share the screen. Yeah. Uh, also, I find it uh, very convenient for uh, and, and 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 lucky for um, all of Scarlet's husbands dying. <laughs> all she's like, oh, fine, I'll marry you, and then like they go off to war or something, and then they die, and then she's like, oh no. And I love the way that she just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and like whenever um, Rhett Butler like auction they have that auction to raise money for the soldiers mm-hmm. and then he offers like 150 dollars at the time which god i don't even know how much that would be worth in like mm-hmm. 1864 but thousands and and uh, to the widow who's in mourning and she's like no 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 like it's fine like i'll, <laughs> I'll do it and it's so shocking and then her uh, her chaperone who's watching scarlet she like passes out and there's a lot of like great serious moments a lot of great comedic moments um it's four hours long, very well paced. Like we said at the beginning, I love a nice intermission. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love how she is forced to have to, she loses everything and she's forced to, you know, develop that true grit and get their calluses on her hands. Mm-hmm. And um, she swears that she's going to pull up her boots and she's going to do this on her own. And it's just, um, you, have, you have kind of like feminist narratives there, which is great for uh, the time. Um, but she still is a flawed character throughout the entire film. It's just very well written, very well acted, very well cast, very well performed. It's a classic. I get it. And I mean, I I love that misdirect you alluded to how based on the works of Jane Austen, we're primed to expect, oh, this is going to be a movie about the question of who does she marry? And we'll find out at the end. And she gets married as an afterthought right away, then widowed. And she promptly goes into learning how to help amputate limbs, amputate limbs without anesthetic in the Civil War hospital. Like, oh, this is real. Great. I think that was like her first day, too. <laughs> She's like, Ugh. War don't wait. Yeah, that was that's true. Um this movie had a lot of reading challenges uh, that if you were stoned at all, which I wasn't, <laughs> uh, I wasn't ready for it at all. A lot of reading challenges. Uh, that was fun. Uh, but I, um, Olivia de Havilland, also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, um, Hattie McDaniel winning for playing Mammy. I mean, Mammy had like all of the good lines. Yeah. I mean, apparently, remember that scene where uh, Rhett keeps like feeding her booze? <laughs> yeah. So that was just supposed to be tea, but as a joke, apparently, in one scene, he actually put like liquor in it and she like swigged it back and was like, oh my God. <laughs> I wonder if they used that take because it must be classic. Yeah, right. Um, th- uh, Mammy was a very controversial role, even for the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people of color were like, you shouldn't be portraying us like that. And then her defense of that was like, I'd rather get paid $700 a week to play um, um, Mammy than uh, be paid like $7 a week to actually be one. Um, and uh, God, like the way that this movie glorifies slavery, I mean, we could just do a whole other podcast about that. Like there's a lot of cringe moments in this movie just because it does make it seem like the South were robbed, mm. you know, and the way that th- that lifestyle is, um, I mean, isn't the opening line of the movie like the master and slave days are gone with the wind? Yeah, the the title crawl. Or, yeah, yeah. Not, but yeah, the printed words on text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you weren't that stoned. You were t- you took in some of it. Yeah, so it's some, something like that. And so when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> you're like, where is this going? But of course, 
it's a product of its time. I understand that. Um, and again, like the racism, uh, and all, that's a totally different podcast and we could talk about that for an hour. Um, but I, we're, uh, we really should mostly just focus here on, on Vivian Lee's performance and how this is epic. I mean, I haven't even seen Streetcar. Hmm. Which she also won Girl. the Oscar for. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we're doing that one next month with uh, Catherine Niker. Uh, and I'm really excited to see that one as well. So I'm not very familiar with Vivian Lee's movies. I think she's only done like, she did like 16 movies. Like she didn't do a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, she, she knocked it out of the park with this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I get it. If you've played uh, Scarlett O'Hara and Blanche Dubois, what more do you have to achieve? That's true, yeah. Uh, after she did become a nurse, that was also a pivotal moment for her where she becomes less selfish. I think she, like, what, drags... Uh, Olivia de Havilland had a baby. Mm. She had to carry the baby, like, across the state. And this, I mean, everyone remembers it as a romance, but... One of the reasons it was such a success, it was also the most entertaining and uh, uh, adrenaline-pumping action blockbuster of its time. There'd never been—I mean, the uh, especially in a time when everything is CGI, it's more exciting now to know that oh, that carriage really was uh, uh, being pulled by a horse in front of a massive fire. It's um, right. The, the sense of peril is real and as exciting today as it was in 1939, I'm sure. That scene that you're talking about where there's that silhouette mm-hmm. and then the... So they had to begin filming the movie before they even had Scarlett O'Hara cast. So most of those scenes were just like body doubles wearing the costumes and the silhouettes. Uh, and they had filmed all the like... Uh, anything and everything they could without Scarlett, uh, but they still hadn't had her. I think it, she got cast in like 1938. Like it was like down to the wire. And they they um, they filmed the big fire scenes first for a very smart budgetary reason. Um, they had to clear all the Selznick backlots of its previous production sets uh, to build the ones for Gone with the Wind. And they figured, let's just burn those down. Oh yeah, I think I read, that's, that is smart. Um... So it really is buildings, uh, buildings burning down, and you can't, you know, no miniature is really going to give the same oomph. No. Uh, when they do go to intermission, she finally returns to her childhood home. It's, like, destroyed. Uh, there's no food anywhere, and she declares that she will never go hungry again. And uh, that's sort of, in a way, how the movie ends as well, whenever uh, Brett... Our Rhett Butler uh, is like, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And he leaves. And then she wants him back because everything is blown up in her face at this point. And then she, what does she say? Like, tomorrow's another day. Yeah. Like, and it's it's a similar way to end, like, the, the... Well, we need a final line. Got anything meaningless? Yeah, right. And then, so you're like, okay, well, once again, she's going to do this again. She's going to... Oh, I also forgot. I totally forgot that their daughter dies at one point. The same way that her father died. Um, hey, maybe just stop riding the horse over the horse. <laughs> Let's just stop doing that. Um, but she's an extremely complicated, layered uh, character. Uh, and I, this, for me, was four hours. It didn't feel like four hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm being honest with you, I would say that uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips felt like four hours. Yeah, my experience of Gone with the Wind was like, oh my God, this is more entertaining than I remembered. I remember more of it from a childhood viewing than I realized and growing dread as I realized, oh yeah, in hour three, divorce becomes a theme. (laughs) It's so funny because uh, whenever you kind of get to the end of the movie, you're just like, yeah, this holds up. This is one of the greatest performances of all time. This movie, it's like we've gone through a whole 
very complicated journey with mm -hmm. this character. And um, I just, I absolutely, yeah. Uh, if anybody has never seen Gone with the Wind, I would very much give, recommend giving it a watch because it is like the classic Hollywood performance and movie. Yeah. It, it just is. If all you know it from is its reputation for the being kind of racist, uh, you're going to be surprised how amazing it is to watch it today and mm -hmm. yes it's problematic but at the same time yes Hattie McDaniel won an Oscar for playing a slave but this is also the most complete nuanced performance by an African-American actor you can see this early I'm glad she got it yes no that's uh, that is true um okay so a couple of facts about this movie <laughs> Gary Cooper turned down the role of Rhett Butler. He was passionately against it. He was quoted as saying, Gone with the Wind is going to be the biggest flop in Hollywood history. And quote, I'm just glad it'll be Clark Gable who's falling on his face and not Gary Cooper. With him in the lead, it would have been a flop. Screw that guy. <laughs> um, if, yeah, no, we already covered that. And, I uh, know we already covered all that. Those are... Uh, those little facts about this movie. Um, okay, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Vivian Lee's performance before we select who we think that the Oscars should have gone to? I think we've said it all. Okay, so you are my guest of honor. So please reveal who you think that the Oscars should have gone to first. Okay, uh, forgive me. I do feel I have to give two answers to this. So first, in at least in principle, the Oscars should have gone to... Judy Garland for The Wizard of Oz. I'm sorry, but it's 1939, and I I just feel like to represent the fandom, we cannot let the year of Judy Garland's legendary lead performance go by without mentioning she won a non-competitive child Oscar, a which is award, yeah. appropriate since, you know, it's not great acting. We're just watching a child on speed. But <laughs> that's true. I would like feel like a disloyal homosexual if I didn't even mention her. <laughs> that said, I, I think a little less suspense. I, I love being contrary and having an outsider idea, but watching this movie, you can't watching these five movies, it's so obvious the Academy got it right. Vivian Lee earned this Oscar in the first hour of the movie and there's still more to go. Yeah, I yeah, okay. Um also that's really funny. I was gonna mention something about the juvenile award because it went to Mickey Rooney mm -hmm. and Judy Garland, they both won because they were under 18, uh, you know, for their performance in those films. In, mm. And so there was like recognition for her, but uh, her big moment in A Star is Born, also directed by George Cukor, she should have won for, but then it went to Grace Kelly. Kelly, um, which uh, for the, the Countryman, I think that was the Country Girl. Called. Country Girl. We, we we actually did that episode. We I think we both picked Judy Garland as, <laughs> as the winner, as the obvious winner. Um, okay, so I think that the Oscars should have gone to. Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. I mean, come on. There, it, it's just, it's funny that you actually picked Vivian Lee. I thought you were going to say uh, Greta Garbo. I feel like Greta Garbo should have an Oscar, but not this year. Not this year. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, this is an American uh, classic. It is an amazing performance. She's flawed, but you're still rooting for her. She goes through a full journey and she just carries this picture so effortlessly on her back. 
it, she's one of the greats. This is one of the greatest performances. I can obviously see why. I mean, going into this, I I, I thought, oh, maybe we'll be like, oh, you're right, maybe uh, Greer Garson or, <laughs> or maybe Greta Garbo or maybe Betty Davis. But but no, it, there's really not much of a competition here. It's it's Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. This is one of those years where you're not even curious about the vote totals. You know it was a 90% landslide. Yeah, like, it, absolutely. You, you cannot have seen all these movies and have a different opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty true. Okay. Uh, so, Joe Arsenal, where can people find you on social media? Um, I have an Instagram at Joe Arsenal Jokes, where I begrudgingly engage enough to tell people when I'm performing. I love it. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you back again whenever your album comes out. And uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks for having me, Gal. This was great. Bye. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.